You're listening to a podcast of Spurious Morality. Hello and welcome to a podcast of Spurious Morality, the second episode this week. We're spoiling you. Um, We are continuing uh, through season three. Uh, So the first half will have gone online the other day uh, and we are going to continue now from the arc. With me, I have Jimmy. Hi. And I have Greg. The TARDIS has just appeared. Statue is still there, but as we pan up, we see that it has three heads on it, and it's our heads. <laughs> we should have done that. We should have done like a previously on a podcast of spurious right. morality. Oh yeah, that would be could fun. Have played it. We could have played into that all quoted master plan or something like that. Alas, we're not. We're here. Um, so we're continuing to go through season three of Doctor Who. Um, the spoiler warning is season three, obviously. Um, and we're going to be covering the Ark, the Celestial Toymaker, the Gunfighters, the Savages, and the War Machines. Um, for the previous stories, obviously check out part one. Um, so yeah, let's let's go straight in. Let's go to quite a curious story, really. Um, it's it's sort of two stories in one, I guess. Uh, it's the Ark. Uh, Jimmy, you go first. Talk to us about the Ark. The Ark's definitely a good little story, a bit underrated in my opinion. And um, I think, though, the thing with having it be basically two stories with them returning to the same place centuries later, I think it would have been a very clever if they'd split it at the time and instead of having it go straight from, you know, we've just been here and we're here again, finish it off, go into the next story, do Celestial Toymaker, do Gunfighters, and then, hang on, we've been here before. But um, obviously that would have been harder to do production-wise because they've got to work around their schedules and all that. But I think that's one of the few flaws with it is that it would have been really clever if they'd split it. But I think it's a good underrated story. I like the whole the whole crisis in the first two episodes being, you know, it's Dodo's fault they've got a plague out of just the common cold. And I think it's worked really well to have that dynamic where some of the people are happy to work with them to cure it and others are thinking, you know, not. But um, I think it works so well that even Stephen gets it because he's not from as far in the future, but he's still from the future. He's still not used to it. And it really gives Dodo a chance to shine a bit in her first story because I love that little scene where um, she's talking to the doctor and He's like, oh, do stop sulking about it. And she's like, it's just my allergies. And then a few minutes later, she's sulking and he's like, oh, dear, blow your nose. And she's like, no, I am actually crying this time. It was a funny little bit of humour there. And I think Dodo is a really underrated companion. I mean, she's never going to be one of the best or one of the favourites of most people. But I think she's definitely underrated. And she gets off to a pretty good start here from, I mean, it's strange jumping straight from the massacre into this because... She seems to take in the travelling pretty well, but I really love that in the novels they actually did a tie-in and did the story that somehow slots in between the massacre and the ark, and that story, Salvation, really fleshes Dodo out a lot. And I know we usually talk about the audios, but that's one of the few books that I've got to give a recommendation to. It's so great to see her develop in that and find a bit more of a background but yeah the arc is definitely an underrated one in my opinion and yeah i quite enjoyed it actually on my recent rewatch 
I don't think that uh, there definitely does need to be that story in between the massacre and the arc in terms of Dodo. It does seem without sort of tying media that she kind of walks into the TARDIS, goes into the wardrobe, puts a fancy dress costume on and catches a cold all in the space of a few minutes. And then there they are on the arc. Um, if only no. the Big Finish was still doing audio novel adaptations, Salvation would really be a perfect one to do now that they've got Noonan and Lauren Cornelius. They could do it at full cast and give us that really great first Doctor story where Dodo actually gets to join the team and get the new recasts to work with Peter Purvis. I think it would be a great opportunity, but it's a shame that range doesn't exist anymore. There's definitely something about companions being underserved in this era um you know uh vicky didn't really get the proper goodbye we discussed this the other day uh when we did the myth makers um dodo just arrives at the end of the massacre runs into the tardis and oh hello you're our companion now that that's kind of all the introduction she gets um and obviously we'll talk about what happens to dodo uh in the not too distant future, uh, Greg, what are your thoughts on the arc? Yeah, you know, talking about Dodo, I mean, it, it's nothing against Jackie Lane or her performance. I mean, I think she's a fun, appealing character. I think she and Peter Purvis have great on-screen chemistry together. They're very funny together. But I mean, for me, Dodo is the worst companion of the classic series, if there is such a thing. And again, not, not because of anything like in the performance or in the choices, but just the way that the character wasn't developed really in any way. You know, like we said, at the end of the massacre, she shows up and then the doctor and Steven look at each other like, Chaplet, could it be? Well, we never find out. And then we move on with her again, was, as you guys were talking about this first episode of the arc, she's, there's, there's a couple of hints that it's her first trip in the TARDIS because she's dubious that they're anything other than like in a different location on Earth. But at the same time, she seems incredibly comfortable with, I mean, she's, she's fine with the idea that they've moved to a different location on Earth in this mysterious blue box that's bigger on the inside. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's obvious why they were able to fit a, an entire novel of her quote-unquote first story in between the massacre and the arc because it just really doesn't work very well and and as you alluded to we'll get to it in the war machines but she has the worst exit of any classic companion bar none um the arc on the other hand i like it you know i i hadn't watched this story in a long time until i did my rewatch for this episode and i didn't remember how different the two parts of the story were from each other, that the first one's mostly a, a, a sort of you know, courtroom intrigue, you know, the doctor and companions being persecuted for bringing a mysterious respiratory virus that starts killing people, which was also a little interesting given the events of the past couple of years. Um, and then the second part, extensive, uh, travel down onto the planet and, and going back and forth and the, the monoids becoming a, a legitimate threat in that regard. And um, I think it works well. I think it's, it's really well paced. Um, one thing that I like about season three is that the first two seasons of the show, as good as they were, and they were very good, really have that, you know, early 1960s, studio bound feel to them. You know, there's not a lot of location work. The pacing is very slow because the actors have to physically move from part of the set to part of the set while they're filming it live. But, you know, getting into season three and, and, and in this story, which is the first story of the season that we have the entirety of, you can really see how they've, they've made it more dynamic. Like the, the filming is more interesting. The pace of the episodes is more interesting. The dialogue's a little more efficient. I like it. I, I think it's a, it's a, maybe the most underrated story of the Hartnell era in its way. Also, I just remembered something I um, forgot to mention that I noticed when I was watching it recently. 
you said about they arrive in their blue box, but there's this odd moment where one of the uh, people on the ship is viewing it on their scanner or whatever, and they say, oh, that black box. And it's yeah, exactly. yeah, I remember that. Yeah, talking like it actually is in black and white, but he's black. I just think that's such a weird and interesting moment nothing gets made of. I mean, that obviously would have been scripted, won't it? And obviously on screen, it always appeared black. I wonder if there was some level of unfamiliarity there. I mean, police box, quite an iconic design. Everyone knows the blue, but... Yeah, it's an interesting one. It's an odd little moment. Um, yeah, I, I, I like the arc. I think it's a lot of fun. I think uh, the sort of the idea of using two parts and then the other two parts as different stories that tie very, very closely together uh, works very well. Um, it's it's good for reusing arc sets and that kind of thing it's not a million miles away from what another story with arc in the title did arc in space along with revenge of the cybermen um shared sets so yeah it's it's very interesting how they kind of they started to play with the format at this point in perhaps a way they never had before uh so far every serial has been a certain length and the story has carried through that. And okay, you've had little stories and things like Marinus and the Chase, and, but yeah, this is um, this is perhaps the first example of using the episodic format in a in a sort of more effective and interesting way. And I think it's something that uh, certainly Classic Who probably never really did that much. Um, I do think that the monoids are absolutely brilliant they are just that they're amazing but terrible sort of 60s sci-fi villains um sort of very very one note as soon as they uh get the ability to speak in the latter two episodes they're, they're, they're just they're evil for the sake of being evil and my possibly my favorite line in all doctor whoever uh, is the one that references the security kitchen. What, what, <laughs> what, what kind of villains have a security kitchen? It's brilliant. It's bonkers. Um, it's an absolutely mad story. It, it really is. But there's there's an awful lot of interesting stuff going on in there. Um, it does give us our second invisible monster of the season. Um, obviously we've had the, uh, oh, what were they called in the Daleks master plan? My brain's just gone. Visions. The Visions, that was it. Um, yes. So we, we do have another invisible villain in this story. Um, so there we go. Third series of Doctor Who and it's running out of ideas. It'll never catch on. It'll never last. Obviously it's just reusing concepts now. (laughs) Um, But these these were nice invisible monsters, whereas obviously the Visions were they were evil, they were bad. And at least they're <laughs> not called like the Invisiblons or something like that. I mean, it's this story is bonkers enough that it, it sort of it wouldn't surprise me if they were. Um, <laughs> right. But there's you know the monoids, for example. Um, Oh, they're, they're, they're aliens with one eye. Let's call them monoids. Um, but yeah, no, I, I, I like the arc. I think it's a lot of fun. I think, um, as you rightly said, it, it's Doctor Who's getting more of a sense of scale now. It's looking bigger. It's looking more adventurous. Um, and I, I do like what this story does. It's an oddity, but it's an enjoyable oddity. Um, so next up is another oddity um and it's an oddity i'm not a hundred percent sure i i like or i enjoy strange story Uh, it's the celestial toy maker um which uh includes uh invisibility for a change uh as part of it uh jimmy what are your thoughts on celestial toy maker it's definitely a pity that it um turned out as it did i think it's 
it's obviously it's not a great story. It's personally my least favourite Hartnell story, but um, it does have some good clever ideas here and there. It just doesn't do enough with them or have enough of them. I mean, I like the whole making the Doctor invisible so that they can, you know, give William Hartnell his break episode but still have him be involved. And um, I think another thing is a lot of people make something of the way Dodo is so insistent on playing by the rules. But, I mean, it's, people think it's stupid or silly that she does that, especially when the opponents are cheating so much. But, I mean, you're in an all-powerful godlike creature's realm and he's, you know, he's breaking the rules, but he's very insistent on them. You don't want to risk losing when you could have won. So, I mean, I don't think Dodo's as stupid as people make her out to be. I think she was actually being quite reasonable there, apart from when she did go back to help Cyril later. That that was a stupid mistake. But other than that, I think she's a bit smarter than Phantom usually gives her credit for. And, yeah, it's just a shame this story wasn't that good and didn't have that much to do. But there's also interesting moments. I mean, we've got thanks to Big Finish and the books, there's been quite a few sequels to the toy maker, but um, it's sort of implied in what the Doctor says that he's met him before, and I think one of the novels did do a brief prequel scene, but, yeah, it's weird to think you've got this all-powerful monster that comes out of nowhere and the Doctor already knows him. I mean, that sort of thing is more like the McCoy era when they pop up, but... They were already doing it here way back in season three, and that's certainly an interesting little um, point. Yeah, the uh, the book in question is Divided Loyalties, and it's interesting. Um, I, I've read it a long time ago. I quite enjoyed it, uh, but it shows an awful lot about the Doctor's time um, at the Academy on Gallifrey and it sort of goes from there and offers up a few things about the Doctor's past that I think some people would prefer uh, to remain a mystery. But it, it's it's an interesting read. It's an odd one. Uh, and it does expand on the concept of the Toymaker quite a bit. Uh, Greg, what are your thoughts? I don't like it. Um, it's... Um... Nothing really happens in it to justify its length or its existence. When it starts, it's setting up this brilliant idea, right? The TARDIS has been taken out of the known universe, effectively, by this mysterious figure. And not only is it this mysterious godlike figure, but it's a mysterious godlike figure that the Doctor knows and has met before and has experience with. And it's setting up this this fascinating conflict outside the bounds of reality itself. And we proceed to spend four episodes watching the characters play life-size board games with each other. It's incredibly tedious. When I, when I say nothing happens, I mean it. I mean, they, they, they write Hartnell out of most of the story. Um, he spends most of it sitting in a chair. He spends a good chunk of it just as a disembodied hand moving pieces around a board. Even that part doesn't make a ton of sense. The, the toy maker wants the doctor to play the trilogic game and play it perfectly, right? There's a, what is it, a thousand and twenty-four moves or something like that that he needs to make an exact perfect sequence. And if he gets to the end before his companions escape, then his companions get trapped forever. Okay. But every now and then, the toy maker seems to think that the time limit is the most important thing. So, like, the doctor will be 200 moves into, you know, his perfect run. And then the toy maker will be like, ah, the companions are moving too quick. Let's go to move 400. And then just gives the doctor the next 200 correct moves. And it's like, what, what's the point of this? Like, I, I, I really don't, I really don't get it. I, it, 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 it boggles the mind. It, it's, it's one of those stories where, you know, if the entire thing was missing, maybe we'd think, oh, man, I can only imagine how strange and surreal, you know, this must have seemed. And then you do get the actual episode four and it doesn't even look good. Eh, I, 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 I don't have a lot of good to say about it. And then 
as you guys were saying, it, it's led to, you know, several spinoff. There was an unmade Colin Baker story that would have featured the toy maker. There's divided loyalties and not, not a big fan of either of these, but I will say though, the magic mousetrap, uh, which I suppose is a spoiler for a 20 year old story is truly, truly excellent. Um, so if there's one thing we can be grateful to the Celestial Toymaker for, it's giving us that story. Yeah, uh, Magic Mousetrap is absolutely excellent. Um, Celestial Toymaker, though, it's, it's, it's an odd one. It's just far too long. It doesn't have enough story, enough in the way of ideas, and doesn't, as you say, particularly make sense. I think it would have worked quite well as a two-parter um, because you can essentially take out episodes three and four and you miss nothing. You lose absolutely nothing. Um, and then... It, but I do quite like the fourth episode. I do quite enjoy that last bit. It, it's it's nice that we've got a bit of this story that exists because um, it's... It's quite a visual story, but there's not much happening visually in that final episode. I think chances are there might be something visual to enjoy in the earlier episodes. Who knows? Um, it's But yeah, it, it's full of big, big concepts, and big ideas, and a genuinely interesting character in the shape of the toy maker. And it, it, it essentially just boils down to let's play some board games. I like the um, very end of episode four. I like the doctor's final gambit to escape, but my God, the first part of it, when they're just hopping around with Cyril, oh, I, I can't, I just can't. And the, there are some characters that, I mean, Dodo just completely loses the plot. I know Jimmy talked about it before, but the, the going back to help him thing, it's its nonsensical. No one would do that, especially when this character's been trying to kill you for three and a half episodes at this point. Um, so, yeah, it, it's uh, there's a lot there to like. It's just not presented in a likeable way, I think, is the best way of summing it up. Um, and it, it ultimately does come off as quite boring, um, but it's, yeah, it, it's, it's an interesting piece of sort of, I suppose, Doctor Who law. I hate the word law, but, um, it, it's kind of, you know, it does play with this concept of, oh, the, the doctor has battled gods in the past and all that kind of thing. And it, it's, it's something that the McCoy era certainly does a very good job of drawing on. Um, therefore it was fitting for McCoy to meet the toy maker in. Um, I've forgotten the name of the story. We were talking about it 10 seconds ago. Uh, the magic meets, Mousetrap. Yeah, uh, McCoy meets the toy maker in the Magic Mousetrap. Okay, let's, let's move on to the next story. And I think this is a bit of an underrated gem, personally. Uh, it's the Gunfighters. It's Doctor Who does a like full-on Wild West story. Um, and I I know a lot of people don't like it. I know that sort of uh, fan wisdom for years and years was that it was the worst thing ever. I don't see what's there to dislike. The song, perhaps, uh, can be a bit grating at times, but there's a great story in there. Uh, Jimmy, you talked to us about the Gunfighters. I definitely agree about it being very underrated. I think, yeah, the song is the uh, frustrating and annoying part, and especially because of the logic of it. I mean, at one stage they're singing the song in the saloon, and yet the lyrics of the song later in the episode are about how the barman died. And you've got to think, I mean, you're running this bar and they're singing this song about how you, some guy in a bar with the same name who has the same name as you dies. You've got to think, hmm, that doesn't quite make sense but um yeah i think if they'd cut most of the song i mean have the bit where steven and dodo are having to sing and play it 
have the last little bit at the end of the last episode where Kate's singing it as they disappear in the TARDIS and don't have it for the whole rest of the story, and you'd have it a lot better story. I mean, I think whenever they get around to the collection for this season, I'd be interested if they did an edit where, like that, where they cut out most of the song and just sort of in the long lingering shots that the song played over, cut them a bit shorter. I think you'd have a really brilliant and a lot tighter story if you did that. I think it'd go up in a lot of people's estimations without the song. I think, yeah, absolutely brilliant story, highly underrated, and the humour here works so much better than in, say, Myth Makers earlier this season. I mean, you've got the stuff about the Doctor being mistaken for um, Doc Holliday. You've got the whole business with the chief extraction and him refusing to drink alcohol, and they're like, oh, well, you don't want me to bash your head in with the um, gun, or do you want to have a swig of the alcohol? And, you know, it's just so funny, and especially later in the story, and I do think this is a good moment for Dodo as well, when she stands up to Doc Holliday and she's holding him at gunpoint and telling him to take her back to Tombstone and she's pointing at the wrong spot and he points it out and she's sort of like, oh, sorry, and re-aims and she practically passes out with worry as soon as she's convinced him to do what she wants. I think it's the fact that he still goes through with it and takes her back and has a bit of honour about it is really nice. I think it's, yeah, an underrated story and Dodo does really well with it and I love the Doctor sort of becoming temporarily a sheriff and they, and it does have good moments for the dark stuff as well. I mean, the gunfight at the end where loads of characters are getting killed and the bit where Stephen's about to be sprung up on a noose and killed and the Doctor's, you know, trapped in the uh, jail and can't go out to help him. It's, yeah, I mean, this is a story like the Romans where at those darker moments uh, do well and, they sort of blend better with the comedy. Like in Myth Makers, I felt the comedy didn't work and really detracted from the story, whereas with this story, I think if you cut all the humour, you'd lose a lot of good stuff and a lot of good meaning in it. I think this story is a lot better and does a lot better with the comedy and balancing it with serious stuff. Yeah, absolutely. It's. I mean, we've had, at this stage, we've had a few of the comedy historicals um, We've also, the, you know, the previous historical to this was very dark and very brutal, the massacre. Um, so I do, I, I, I think this story comes at the perfect place in the season after we did have a very dark early half and we've had a couple of strange stories. I think a sort of comedic and slightly odd, quirky historical. Uh, it was absolutely the right way to go. And um, it's interesting what you say about, you know, cut the song out and tighten it up a bit and make it a bit shorter. I'd never considered that before. But, um, yeah, maybe sort of a, a slightly pacier version would would definitely benefit the story. Uh, Greg, what's your what are your thoughts on the gunfighters? It's interesting we talk about, you know, is this underrated or not? I think the gunfighters has become a fairly properly rated story at this point. Um, certainly back in the in the 80s, especially, as you said, this was considered the nadir of Doctor Who. This was considered the worst episode ever. It was considered you know, disgraceful, embarrassing, something that's just best forgotten about. But you know, once it came out on VHS in the late 90s and then again on DVD and people actually got to watch it, I think the reputation of it went up quite a bit. Like, I really don't see people in fandom ripping this story like they used to anymore. And they shouldn't. It's a it's a perfectly fine story. It's not a masterpiece. It's, it's not legendary, but it's doing something different, which is one of the hallmarks of this season. And it, it, it's doing it pretty well. The idea of doing an Old West story and having it confined entirely to a studio seems suicidal from a production front, but they actually kind of pull it off. And and, and it, it really feels like this is made by people who have an affection for Westerns. Um, yeah, I mean, obviously the American accents aren't fantastic, but everyone seems to be having the time of their life. Like they're really having fun doing this sort of thing. Just, just the... The appearance of Hartnell in a in in the in the cowboy hat is 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 just fantastic. I, I really I, I I love the imagery of it. Um, 
it's it's not very historically accurate to what actually happened in Tombstone really at all, but that doesn't matter. It's, it's using these iconic characters from history. Um, I, I love speaking as a dentist myself, the fact that the story begins with the doctor having a bad toothache and needing to find a dentist. And the first dentist they find is Doc Holliday of all people which ropes them into the story, so to speak. It, it, it's that That's just a, a, a really fun little detail. And the song, I agree with Jimmy that there's just too much of it. Like it, Sometimes it seems like after every single scene break, they're singing, but I don't mind the song. Like I, I, I like it. I, I, I like having this sort of singing narration and these, these summary moments. I just, yeah, I, I think if they'd cut it down to a couple of times an episode as opposed to what feels like 15 times an episode, I, I think that would elevate the story even more. But honestly, I I don't know why people used to dislike this so much. It's, it's a perfectly entertaining and fun story. One thing that uh, sort of I'll always remember about this story was it was... Um, I got it on video. It was in the first Doctor box set, like the final three complete Hartnell stories to be released. And by that stage, it was fairly late on in the VHS releases. Um, they had like information in the sleeve. You could pull the video sleeve out and you could read little bits. You know, We had them in the DVDs as well, and we've got the booklets in the Blu-rays. Um, but yeah, it was the, the sort of later videos that started doing that. And the... Um, sort of notes for the gunfighters was the notes themselves were quite short because most of the space was taken up by uh, just the printed lyrics to the song um, in a way that you get with sort of record sleeves and that kind of thing and it it did amuse me the thought that maybe out there somewhere somebody actually had these notes as they were watching it and were singing along to the ballad of the last chance saloon Um, and I, I, I pity the neighbours if that was the case. Um, yeah, gunfighters. I, I like you say it, it. It's not exceptional. It's not the greatest story ever. But there's nothing seriously wrong with it. the The story's good. The performances are great. Um, the cast are clearly having fun. You could argue that this sort of appears. It's the last time Hartnell appears to be really, really enjoying himself in the role and really sort of getting stuck into the script. Um, and it, it's it's so good to see. And Stephen and Dodo have plenty to do. Um, as has been mentioned, Dodo gets to play a bit of a hero role, um, certainly comedically. Uh, yeah, there's, there's a lot to enjoy with the gunfighters. And I do think that... Uh, I do think it has been reassessed a bit in the last couple of decades, and I think it thoroughly deserved that because it's it's definitely not the pit. It's definitely not the worst. It's not even the worst of the season it's in uh, by a long shot. Um, and yeah, it's doing something different. The song was an experiment. It was one that perhaps didn't work, but I'm glad it's there in the way that it is. So let's move on to um Stephen's final story uh the savages and it's maybe it's because it's completely missing and it's you know i it seems to be or seems to have been another story that's quite visual i just don't really get on with this one um it's probably a better story than I think it is, but just it's, it's one of the few where the audio just doesn't quite hold my attention, I suppose. Um, but it does have one at least redeeming feature, and that is it, it manages to handle a companion exit fairly well, um, which for season three and this, this stage in the show's existence is nothing short of a miracle. Uh, Jimmy, do you want to come in on the savages? It's a good story. It's um, not not one of the best, not one of the worst. Somewhere in the middle, I'd say it's. I, I actually think it's pretty good. I think that yes, yeah, Stephen's exit is brilliant. I love the idea that 
he's the sort of person they can trust to rebuild a whole planet and its whole culture and unite the people. I mean, it gives him a lot of credit, but I mean, the way the Doctor sort of sends him off and trusts him to do that is really good. And I think Dodo gets a bit of a chance to shine as well. I like at the start when, before the Doctor's sort of asking the uh, elders questions and before Stephen's questioning anything, Dodo's already like, oh, what's this? Why can't we go here and all that? She sort of is a lot more intelligent than fandom usually gives her credit for and I think she really does well in this story. I mean, it's really sad with Dodo that she got such a terrible introduction and a terrible exit, but when you look at in the middle of it, when you look at all the other stories, she actually is nowhere near as bad as a lot of people seem to act like she always was. And so, yeah, I like that about it. But, yeah, the story itself is obviously a bit cliche, the whole, you know, here's the good people, here's the bad people, oh, they're, you know, it's a perfect utopia, oh, wait, it isn't all that. It's a bit, yeah, cliche. But um, I think it does a pretty good job with it despite that. I think one of the few faults I noticed was this bit where, I forget which one characters it was. One of the scientists or something was talking about the um, the tribe of the savages and which one was it? Oh, it's not the female as if, you know, and that sort of made it seem a bit smaller because you'd think, you know, it's this whole giant city, it's this whole giant tribe of exiles and there's only one woman, like the woman as if there's no other. I thought that was a bit weird. Like usually Doctor Who's good at sort of, you know, building these societies and sort of pretending they're bigger than just the few extras you see, but acting like there's only one woman in a whole tribe is sort of the opposite of that. So I think that was a bit of a mistake. But, yeah, I love the story. I love the whole, especially the um, the machine that drains the energy and when Jano uses it, and because he's drained all the Doctor's energy instead of just giving a bit to him and a bit to the other elders, he sort of becomes very Doctorish. And I think the actor gives a great performance as a sort of not quite but trying to be the doctor and what like when the um other elders are talking about oh the um interlopes or whatever and he's like oh my friends it's i think he gives a really good performance there and it's interesting to see that at the end i if i remember correctly he's not one of the ones that gets killed off or anything he's going to help rebuild the society he's not going to be in charge anymore but he's happy to defer to steven and i think whether it's because of the Doctor's influence or whether he's just learned from his mistakes. I think it's interesting to see a villain sort of, rather than just get killed or exiled or whatever, just to sort of be deposed and be like, okay, I actually will still help try to do what's best for my planet in the new way. And I thought that was an interesting little idea that it did pretty well with. So, yeah, that was a nice little odd moment, but a good one. Yeah, absolutely. It's... I mean, it's in a in a season of sort of experimentation, and it's, I guess, a fairly simple story. Um, and maybe you know, maybe I'm just sort of comparing it to what's immediately around it, um, and it, it comes off as not much happening. But you're right that there's there's a great deal of stuff there to enjoy and going on and there's some excellent character work in it uh greg what are your thoughts on the savages i think the savages along with the smugglers constitute maybe the two least remembered doctor who stories i think the and again it's in large part because they're completely missing um the Savage is slightly more memorable because it marks Stephen's departure. Um, but it, it, it really is the sort of, of story that it, it's not bad. It's, it's good for what it is. It's well put together. But it's the sort of thing that just slides out of your mind very quickly after you watch it. It's, it's very straight down the line science fiction. As Jimmy was saying, you know, this this idea of the paradise, the utopia, but it's got the, the dark exploitative secret at its heart. That's the sort of motif that you see recur in science fiction over and over again. I, I mean, I think that that sort of construction hit its peak with Ursula Le Guin's The Ones Who Walk Away from Omelas. But that, of course, was after The Savages. So maybe she drew influence from Doctor Who. I, I don't think so. But... Yeah, I mean, I, I 
I find it interesting, you know, it's Steven's last story and they really spend the last episode, you know, setting him up in this sort of heroic posture so that they can justify him being the ideal candidate to stay behind and unite the society. But they don't really follow through with that in the first three episodes. So it still feels a bit like it comes out of nowhere. Like it's, it's probably the best companion departure in season three, which really isn't saying much, but it, it, at least it, it gives us a legitimate goodbye between the doctor and the companion. Like seeing the two of them shake hands for the last time is, is, is emotional. Like it, 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 it works. Um, but yeah, I, I, I really just don't, I don't have a lot to say about this one. It's, it's, um, it's, it's a, it's a decent, unmemorable science fiction story. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. You know, it, it's certainly not the worst thing of the season. It's not the best thing of the season. There's just not a lot to distinguish it. So yeah, I, I'm going to leave it there. Fair enough. Yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right. And we mentioned um, when we were talking about Galaxy 4 in the previous episode that it was effectively a Star Trek episode before Star Trek happened. And I think you could say the same of the Savages as well. I think it's that sort of very 60s idea of what sci-fi was and what concepts could be explored. Um, and of course, you know, within the in the sort of context of the real world, there were ideas about, you know, societies living to certain systems, but actually it was corrupt and there were there was the shadowy leaders at the top and yeah i guess it's a in a way it's it's exploring a contemporary theme um i i was just going to spend a moment talking about um well we've already mentioned it but steven's departure now it's steven's the last i suppose proper first doctor companion the last one that sort of spent any real amount of time traveling with the first doctor and went through an awful lot and has been explored a great deal in other media. Peter Purvis has done some fantastic stuff with big finish. Um, it does, it feels as though the first doctor era does kind of end here and everything else is a bit of an epilogue. Um, obviously Stephen just met Ian and Barbara so you've got that link at least to the original TARDIS team and that is that's now gone that's finished and I think as I say the rest of the first Doctor era does feel like a bit of an epilogue in the next story the war machines he gets back to gets back to 1960s London and then after that uh, the smugglers is sadly fairly forgotten uh, as we've said and uh, the 10th planet is well it's his last story and you know we know the the, the story of behind the scenes and that kind of thing um so yeah this is in a way a sort of the the defining moment that begins the end i guess of the first doctor's era you know, is this the point where his body does start wearing a bit thin and all that kind of thing? Um, but yeah, Stephen as a character is really what I wanted to discuss and how this heroic ending absolutely suits him. Um, but I do, like I say, think it means that there is now something missing from the rest of the First Doctor's era. Um, so, Jimmy, do you want to sort of talk to us a bit about Stephen? Uh, yeah, basically, I think it's really interesting that he's such a um, big part of the era. Like, he gets to see the last little bit of Barbara and Ian, and he stays through to just before Ben and Polly join. And so he's in a, a lot of stories, and he sort of gets to change and develop a bit more than some of other companions did. I think in his stories with Vicky, he's clearly the inexperienced newbie, and she's the... I've been doing this for a while, confident one who's sort of, you know, showing him the ropes in time when he doesn't even believe that he's in a time machine and 
then you get, of course, Vicky gets her exit. He doesn't get to say goodbye to her. He's heart, heartbroken. And then you go put through the ringer of Dalek's master plan and the massacre. And basically his era goes from being fun and happy trips with Vicky to dark, dismal, oh, God, everything's terrible towards the end. And then he gets to leave and try to make a better world. I think it's a really great little arc. And I think Stephen definitely um, – is an underrated companion because he he had a hard work to do. I mean, he's joining, he's replacing not just Barbara and Ian, but both of them leaving at once, and he's got to pick up the slack. And then he's got to be the the main companion once Vicky goes and sort of take new ones under his wing. And so, and then you get all the production troubles during season three and. The fact that he lasted through it all, still managed to get a good story and a good ending and really shined. I think it's a testament to the character and the actor that he managed to do so well with it in such a troubled time. Yeah, and um, I've always loved how, uh, even to this day, Peter Purvis will say, well, Hartnell was my doctor and I absolutely loved him and loved working with him. There was a very, very clear sort of, I mean, I want to say friendship, but at least admiration, probably friendship off screen as well. And I, I really do think they work incredibly well as a pair. I do think he's uh, the best First Doctor companion, which may be a controversial statement because a lot of First Doctor companions are very well loved. Um, but yeah, I, I do think there is something particularly good about the First Doctor and Stephen as a pairing. Uh, do you want to add anything about Stephen, Greg? Yeah, I mean, it's really a testament to Peter Purvis that he that he created such a memorable character. Because I, it, it, it's hard for me to to rate the companions and say if he's the best one, but he's he's certainly in the conversation. But you realize we only have eighteen episodes, like individual episodes, with Peter Purvis in them. Technically 19, if you count the chase episode where he's not playing Steven, but we have 18 episodes and everything else is missing. Now, granted, we've got the audios for it, but to to be a, a character that is still this well-known and this beloved among people who were born decades after these episodes aired, to to make that kind of impression with only 18 existing episodes is 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 fantastic. I, I love Steven. I, I think he's he is a, a great companion and I I think there's a there's a void in the next few episodes until Jamie comes on for sure, and that's nothing against Ben and Polly, but I I just think that the Stephen's personality is, is is something that the show missed. It does feel like something is missing from Doctor Who now, and I think you're right. I think it's when Jamie gets a little more established. I think it's probably really. Um, the faceless ones where we really start to get what the character of Jamie really is. Um, so, yeah, I think there's a gap sort of between here and the Faceless Ones with no big definitive companion. Um, we've got one story left. We are nearly at the end of the Mammoth Season 3 in terms of number of serials. Uh, and it is one of my favourites ever. Um, it's The War Machines uh, and it, it's it's another. It's easy to look at the War Machines now and see it as just another Doctor Who story. But it's along with a lot of other stuff in this season. It is an oddity. It is set in 1960s London, um, and Hartnell's stories weren't set in 1960s London. So yeah, it, it's it certainly has elements of where the series would go over the next few years. There's sort of the army being called in. It's very sort of prototype unity um, and all that sort of unity. That's, that's a different word. Units like is what I meant to say. Um, but uh, yeah, it, it's, I, I do think there's a lot to enjoy in the war machines. Um, it's very easy to view it as a, a relatively generic story now, but I think at the time, I think at the time it was made, it was particularly different. So, Jimmy, talk to us about The War Machines. It's really such a great story, and 
I think if it weren't for the terrible handling of Dodo's exit, I think that's one of the few faults in this otherwise brilliant story. I mean, I just love the they're, they're back on present day Earth and you know putting the out of water sign on the TARDIS, which is um, I know it's just an excuse to stop the policeman going in, but it's kind of fitting with uh, how the TARDIS works sometimes. And just yeah, I love the modern setting and the way the Doctor just can get into these high society things and fit right in and the I I don't know how he passed himself off apparently in the novel or in some other extended universe type thing people were saying that somehow it was his connection to Ian that let him in because Ian became a more prominent scientist after his travels and I love that idea but it's a shame it didn't get used on TV and yeah it's so great to see Ben and Polly get such a good start I mean it, Polly is just instantly likable and Ben, get, you get that initial hold down in the dumps thing in the bar and, you know, Polly tuning him up and him defending her and it's, I think, such a great start for them. I mean, they just, they don't take any time to get established. They're just instantly likable and instantly working really well with Hartnell and it's, um, yeah, it's a shame that Dodo disappears and doesn't get a proper exit, but you know, you, it's kind of sad to say, but you don't really miss her because these two have just taken to the role so instantly and so well. And um, especially, I think, with Polly getting hypnotised as well for a fair whacker's story, Ben ends up sort of his sole companion and he, you know, he really pulls his weight. I mean, he's helping the Doctor, he's instantly fitting in with that, he's looking after Polly and, you know, in the Trout Mirror to come, Ben sort of gets a bit of the short end of the stick at quite a few times because once they add Jamie, they're sort of competing for the lead male role and, you know, um, the scripts tend to favour one or the other and both of them suffer for it a bit. And so it's nice to see Ben before Jamie turned up and that he really shines in the companion role when he gets the chance. I mean, like, of the two of them, Polly feels like such a second Doctor era companion even in the Hartnell stories she's in. But Ben is the opposite. He almost feels like this big part of the Hartnell era, but like he's sort of less important to the second Doctor. And so, yeah, it's such an interesting dynamic and they both really shine in this story and get such a great introduction. I really um, think the dynamic of them with the first Doctor is such a short-lived thing on TV. I mean, they get two more stories and then Hartnell's gone. And I love that the Big Finish revisited them in the Companion Chronicles and used that little time or excuse to sort of extend their era with Hartnell. And I think it's a shame that since Elliot Chapman left the role that we probably won't get any or many more stories with this TARDIS team because I think it's just one full of potential. I mean, now that we've got Noonan for full cast audios, I would love if Elliot... Uh, um, Elliot came back and if we got, you know, him and Polly and the first Doctor together again, I think it's such an underrated era and it's a shame that it was so short-lived. I agree. And I, I do love Ben and Polly as companions. Uh, we'll talk about them a bit more when we get to season four because obviously that's that's really their era. Um, but, yeah, it's the War Machines is such a good introduction for them. And it's a real shame that, A, that kind of comes at the cost of a really, well, of Dodo's pretty rubbish exit. Um, and it's also a shame that we kind of don't, well, the production team kind of didn't learn any lessons from this. And Polly and Beng's exit is also pretty rubbish. Um, uh, but yeah, it, it's, it's so good to have them join and it, the War Machines does have this sort of fresh feeling about it. It's, you know, the end of the third season, but it really feels as though after not quite being able to decide what it wants to be for at least half a season, uh, Doctor Who's finally sort of found where it's going and has sort of put itself back on track, for want of a better phrase. Uh, Greg, talk to us about the War Machines. It's such a good story, and it, and it feels like we're saying so much different from what's come before, not just because of, of the setting in modern-day London, which they've touched on a few times, but this is the first time they've really 
set an entire story there. The visual aspect of it is amazing. I mean, I, I Michael Ferguson, the director, I, I assume was responsible for most of this, but I mean, the, the story starts and we've got that shot from what I assume is on top of the post office tower and you figure, okay, this is a nice little bit of stock footage. And then it pans to the left and pans down. And then, no, this isn't. This was shot for Doctor Who because there's the TARDIS appearing. It's it's unlike any shot that's been in the show to this point. And the entire, we don't get anything like that again, but the whole four-part story is, is filled with stuff like that. The camera's constantly moving, even in the studio scenes. There's a lot of interesting location filming. It's it's it just it feels almost like a different show. And it and, and for the last story in season three, it really feels like it's setting out a marker for where where Doctor Who is headed. Um, unfortunately, it, it it's hard to confirm whether it was because so much of season four is missing. Um, and and I think that's part of the issue with with Ben and Polly too is that they get as Jimmy was saying a fantastic introduction here. I mean these are. These are two very appealing characters. You know, Ben is is sliding into that, you know, younger male role to do the the physical parts as Ian and Stephen before him. Um, I, I do agree that Polly does come off a little bit more as a, as a Troughton era uh, companion, which is what she ends up being. But the thing with them is that we get these four episodes and then after this, there's only nine episodes <laughs> that exist that, that feature Ben and Polly. Um, so if you're mostly just watching what we have existing, don't get very used to having them because they're going to be gone before you know it. Um, and it's, it's, it's a shame because I, I think, and, and I know now we have a lot of season four animated, but I, I really do think that, that Ben and Polly would be held in much higher regard in fandom if we could just see Michael Craze and Anakin Will's, um, in 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 more actual episodes of Doctor Who, but but sadly we we probably will not. Um, it's it's that's a shame. And and then yes, the the dodo exit is it's just terrible. I, I I really don't know what they were thinking. It's kind of funny because it's it's paralleled by Ben and Polly's exit in the faceless ones, where they just kind of vanish from the story halfway through. But at least there they show up to say goodbye at the end. Whereas here. We just get a letter from, you know, oh, Dodo's fine. She's going to stay out in the country. Oh, okay. And then everyone's like, yeah, whatever. <laughs> it just, the, 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 it's, it's affording the character the same level of respect that's been afforded to her, like throughout her, her short era. And it, and it, and it's really a shame because I, I like Jackie Lane's performance. I, I think they could have done really anything with the character, but they just could have done a lot more. And, 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 that, and that's disappointing. And that's really the only disappointing part of this. Um, lastly, this is one of Hartnell's best performances in the role. I think you can unfortunately tell that it's really pushing at the bounds of his stamina. Like there are multiple occasions in this where he's tripping over lines and you know it, it it's not an acting choice like you can see he's you know losing the the script a little bit from time to time but he is all over these four episodes he's an absolutely commanding presence the cliffhanger of him staring down the war machine is is one of the best in the history of the show it's a real it, it's really the final showcase for his doctor i think uh the final like him commanding the screen in this way. And there's, there were unfortunate real life reasons for that, but yeah, the, the, the war machines is, is one of the best Hartnell stories. It's everyone should see it if they haven't. I agree completely. And yeah, it, it Hartnell is just absolutely breathtakingly brilliant in that scene, that cliffhanger, um, a truly defining moment of his doctor, really. Um, it's it is a shame that we're coming towards the end of the Hartnell era. I've I've really enjoyed discussing it, and I've really enjoyed uh, it, kind of reassessing it, talking to you guys about it. You know, it's you've you've made me look at certain things in ways that I haven't before. But that's that's the joy of sharing these things. Um, however, that is all we have time for in today's episode. We will talk about Hartnell's doctor a little bit more when we get to season four, which we'll be doing in the next month or so. 
Uh, but for now, I will say goodbye to you, Jimmy. Bye. Thanks for having me. And I will say goodbye to you, Greg. Thanks for having me on, and I can't wait to finish up the Hartnell era and get into Patrick Trotten. Yep, thank you both very much for joining me, and uh, we will be back soon. Goodbye now.